0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu.
1: So speaking about 10 years ago, there's a little company called Google got started, um, and we all know that story, but there's actually two Larry's that matter at Google. There's Larry Page, and there's a guy named Larry Brilliant. Um, which I sure wish I was his son, because I could be called Tom Brilliant. That would just be unbelievable. Um, can you adopt me, maybe? Is it too late? Uh, so I, we, Everybody online as well as here has the flyer and has his bio. If I told you his bio and tried to do a proper intro, I would be up here for half an hour. We only have an hour with Larry Brilliant, so I, I would rather just get at it, but he is the executive director of Google.org, as you know. And I don't know about you today, but the news this uh, week has not exactly been fun to read or, or see, uh, with all everything going on in uh, Asia with cyclones and, and earthquakes and so on. So today, I, I got to tell you, I was pretty anxious and, and frankly depressed uh, when I th- re- was reminded that I was getting a chance to come and see this. And when you look at what Google Org is trying to do and when we hear this and also get to know this human being and all the things that he's done since he was... Uh, you know, the college age of, the, of the, ki- uh, the folks in the room, it's pretty inspirational. So it's perfect timing to have Larry come to campus and be online with us. So let's welcome Larry Brilliant from <laughs> Google.org.
2: <laughs> I don't know if this is the way these things are supposed to work, <laughs> but I really feel uh, I'm not sure if I'm giving a talk or getting an EKG. <laughs> Um, well, it's really nice to meet all of you, and it's very nice to be here. Um, and Tom, thank you very much, and, and Brooke, thank you very much for setting this up. I won't tell everybody here you promised to sing Grateful Dead songs. I'll just we'll just keep that between you and me, privately, <laughs> secretly. But it's really wonderful to be here, and, and I just want to start off with what Tom said. Um, you know, we've got uh, teams and um, work going on right now as we speak in Myanmar and in. Uh, in China. Um, And uh, actually why don't I start off with that and then I'll go into this idea of 21st century philanthropy because really I think what Google did in the last couple of weeks has made me feel proud to be at Google. Um, Beginning on uh, Thursday of last week we took the Google homepage and if you got on the Google homepage it would say do you want to support the efforts to um, relief efforts in, in Myanmar and you'd click on that and you'd go to a landing page. And the landing page would give you an option to make a donation to one of the relief organizations that were working in Myanmar. Now this is not really philanthropy. This is not what I think of as strategic philanthropy. This is just what it's like to be a real human being. You have to do this. Um, and then it took about 18 seconds and you could send money directly to the field. And that's how quickly it went. and that's, that's what we're hoping to do again now in a little different way in China. Uh, we raised a million dollars on, online in about three days. We matched it with a million dollars and so there's two million dollars going to about uh, a dozen organizations in the field. And here's what's interesting about that, trying to get a company to do good things. At Google is pretty easy because Larry and Sergey are um, they're almost like moral prodigies uh, and they want to do the right thing but it's still hard. The last time we did a promotion using Google's uh, homepage was for uh, HIV-AIDS Day, and we tried to direct traffic to Project Red and to a lot of other AIDS activist organizations, and we brought them all down. We brought all those websites down. We didn't mean to, but we, you know, the traffic that came through brought everybody down, almost, almost brought down our own, our own network. So we figured out how to put a landing page in between because we have so many engineers who've worked so hard on that. So I just mention that because the, the death rates in those two catastrophes in, uh, in China and Myanmar are racing against each other to reach 100,000 first, and it's really, um, it, it's not the end of disasters. But, but disasters and philanthropy are very different. Um, you know, we, we, we talk about strategic philanthropy in a way that's different than charity, in a way that's different than just giving money. It's trying to find something in the world that is wrong or could be better that you can fix and use all the skills that you're learning right now in school at Stanford and use those skills and try to think of the project that you're doing and put the same skills and attention to fixing that problem as you would to running a business. The world's a little topsy-turvy. Sometimes our best and brightest go into business instead of into philanthropy. My hope is that we'll be able to change that balance just a little bit by by the work that we're doing. So um, let's go through this outline, and we'll go through this really quickly so we can get to Q&A, which is always much more fun. But I, I do want to tell you a little bit about what's going on in the world of philanthropy and in the outside world, and especially in the world of global health. And then I'm going to give you an example of a success story in smallpox eradication. But we might be talking about blindness or polio or malaria. It's a global program where dozens of countries and hundreds of thousands of people put their egos aside and their religion and their culture and their race and their natural, national origin and they put it aside and they work together fighting for a common cause instead of fighting against each other. And That's always a good thing to talk about. And then I'll tell you a little bit how philanthropy works at Google and I'll go through our five initiatives and I'll try to do this really quickly. So when I got to uh, Google Uh, Larry and Sergey had created this organization called Google.org, and they tried to do something new. Instead of making a 501c3, a regular foundation that used tax-advantaged money, instead they uh, made a pledge to shareholders that they would put 1% of Google's equity, 1% of Google's profits, and a large percentage of Google's um, talented engineering and other staff to work for things that wouldn't benefit shareholders, but would benefit the world. And that became Google.org. And when I came there about two and a half years ago, the real question was, how do you choose from all the awful things in the world, the thing that we could do uniquely or said another way, how do you take the engineering and the skills, not the money, but the idea of Google and use those resources for making the world a little bit better, a little bit fairer, a little bit more just, a little bit safer. And uh, I think I had only been at Google for about a month when I'd received almost 10,000 letters, emails, packages at my doorstep, phone calls, uh, from people who had very good ideas on how that money could be used. And these were good people. These were, not, they were very noble people with great projects. And sorting through them was the hardest task that we had. And it took us a year and a half which seems like an awful long time. It took us a year and a half to take those 10,000 good ideas and come up with five that we thought we could add unique benefit to. And in doing it, we first started off by saying, what's the single most important criteria? There's a lot of criteria. Uh, One of them is, can Google add anything different than the Red Cross or another organization? Another criteria, is it big enough? Is the idea big enough? Will it scale? Will what you're doing scale? Another is, is it sustainable? Just like questions you'd ask if you were looking at a business plan. But I started off with something called Gandhi's Talisman. And this is an answer that Gandhi gave when he was leading the resistance movement against the British. And people would come to him and say, Mahatma, how do I know if what I'm doing is good? What is the summum bonum? What's the test, the ultimate test of whether what I'm doing is good or not? And he said, I will give you a talisman. I will give you an amulet, a charm that will protect you from ever making a mistake. And that talisman was this. He said, before you act, consider the face of the poorest, most destitute person that you have ever chanced to meet. Remember that person and his life and his circumstances, and then ask yourself if that which you are about to do will benefit that person. And if it will, you're doing the right thing. You're safe. You're protected from making a mistake. And if it won't, think again. So in this great process where we had Boston Consulting and McKenzie and we had all these great business seers help us think these things through, that really was our guiding principle. Will what we're doing benefit the poorest amongst us? And uh, I can't tell you how important that was for us because as you sort through all the different problems that we face, there was a a Stanford uh, professor, Paul Ehrlich, who in the 50s and 60s wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And he predicted that by today, 2008, we would have 10 billion people in the world and we would run into the Malthusian problem of overpopulation, not enough food, widespread famine. Well, we don't have 10 billion people. We have 6.7 billion of us, brothers and sisters of us. But we eat like we were 10 billion. And we have a carbon footprint like we were 10 billion. So we have all the problems that he predicted, even though we don't have the numbers. And it's not just that there's 6.7 billion of us. It's that in June of last year, we passed 50% of us living in cities and slums. And by the year 2020, there'll be 19 cities that have a population of more than 20 million people in them without services for 30% of those people. And it's not just that there's more of us and that we're congregated in cities, that we're pushing every single frontier. We're pushing the frontier in the Amazon and Rainforests, we are coming into contact with animals that humans have never been in contact before, and we are eating them. We are meeting them and we are eating them. So the viral chatter that goes back and forth between zoonotic diseases and humans and their insect carriers is at a velocity and a noise level never before. And if you look at places like southern Asia, southern Southeast Asia, and you find that there is now a density, of population of animals and humans living together. If you go to Laos, 90% of of homes in Laos have uh, chickens, which is a measure of of, uh, wealth, but they also have pigs. And the chickens live on one level and the pigs live on another. And when you eat the chicken and there's chicken body parts left over, they're rendered, as it's called, they're chewed up in a grinder, and they're fed to the pigs. And when you eat the pigs and there's pig parts left over, they're chewed up and they're put in a renderer and they're fed to the chickens. So humans and chickens and pigs are eating the same protein substance. I can't think of a better science experiment if you wanted to create bird flu and try to build a pandemic. That's what's happening as a consequence of population. It's just not our sheer numbers. And that's the background to global warming. That's the background to pressures and land as Communities are struggling for survival. That's why 900 million people today don't have adequate food, and the number's going up. And every time we try to fix something, as we did with ethanol, some other part of this complex system creaks. And now we have chapati riots and uh, tortilla riots because the prices of food have reached a level that most people can't afford them. This is the background that we're dealing with and it it is the cause of an increasing disparity in wealth. I don't think we've ever seen a situation in human history where the disparity between the rich and the poor is as great as it is today. Now, I love India, I lived in India for 10 years and I consider myself an honorary Indian. Uh, And Indians are justly proud of the fact there are more billionaires in Bombay than there are in New York City but hardly a few kilometers away, there are 300 million people living on 70 cents a day. We've never seen a situation like this in human history. Maybe pre-Bolshevik Russia, but not on a scale that we face right now. President Clinton said recently that this situation is, it is unprecedented, it is unfair, it is unsustainable, and it is insecure. This is the background against which philanthropy has to choose what do we do that makes the world better and how do we deal with the really big issues the trends in health and climate jack geiger who was the founder of community medicine said that in situations like this the poor get sicker and the sick get poorer and i wonder what he would say today so against this background of negativity it'd be very easy to see the glass as half empty in fact uh, I'm often accused of being too short to actually see that the glass is really half empty because I can only see the part which is half full. And I really am very optimistic because what has happened against this background of all of these grave issues that we face, largely out of Stanford and colleges like Stanford, a new breed of entrepreneur and philanthropists have emerged the Pierre Omidyars, the Jeff Skolls, the Mark Benioffs, Larry and Sergey. Where did these people come from? You know, in, uh, when I was growing up, we didn't have people who would make such a terrific commercial success. And then while they were still young, turn their attention to the big problems of, of humanity. You live in a very special time. You are not only privileged because you get to go to a school like Stanford, You're privileged because around you are people who will reshape the world. And one person with a great idea can make a Google and a Google.org, and Bill Gates can make the Gates Foundation. This is a time of grave danger, but even more richer opportunities. Well, I'll tell you a little about smallpox, because I will never be able to be pessimistic, having seen the worst disease in history eradicated. And when I worked in India in 1974, most of you weren't even a gleam in your parents' eyes in 1974, there were 188,000 children who died that year in India. I was in places in in Bihar state where the rivers stopped running because of the bodies that were thrown into the rivers and um, I've probably seen 5,000 little babies die of this terrible disease, which was the worst disease in history. uh, in the last century, the one that ended nine years ago, wasn't so far away. Half a billion people died of smallpox. That's not a, a wordo or a typo. Half a billion people died of smallpox. More people died of smallpox than any disease in history in all the wars of history that have been recorded. It goes back to the biblical plagues, one of the biblical plagues being boils. And, and this is a picture of Pharaoh Ramses who died of smallpox. And how do we know he died of smallpox? Because this little area of his skin, a friend of mine from CDC was asked by Anwar Sadat's widow to come and open up the sarcophagus and, and look at the mummy and take a little piece of skin and put it under an electron microscope and we could still see smallpox viruses. So this is a disease which began back in antiquity and I was able to see the very last case of smallpox in nature, so I can never be pessimistic in in the midst of the worst plague or the worst disaster. And you shouldn't be either, because if humanity can set aside our historic problems and conquer a disease like smallpox, and soon polio, and please God, soon after that, malaria, and in between, we'll get rid of guinea worm. These are great accomplishments, but they take more than just science. They take will. They take the same will that it takes to start a company and to push it through into marketability. It takes something which public health has not historically had a great deal of. But now we're finding new ways to do that. Now this is my favorite slide and it is my favorite slide not because I like to see the death of kings and queens and sovereigns. It is not my favorite slide because we can put a list of all the great people at all the wealth in the world and all the power and they died from one disease but it's my favorite slide because it tells me and it should tell you that at some level, we're all in this together. That it's true that 99.4% of all of our genetic material is the same, that it doesn't matter what race we are, what religion, what national origin, at some level, if you're not vaccinated against a new virus, which kills people and you get it, you're gonna die. We share that in common. So if we pollute the water, we pollute the air, there's no place to hide. There's no amount of wealth that will allow you to buy your private island because these guys have tried it all throughout history, but they died from smallpox. And to get rid of smallpox, it took the largest army in United Nations history. In India alone, we had 150,000 people who went door to door trying to find every case of hidden smallpox. And we visited every house in India every month regularly for 20 months. We made over a billion house calls. Something you won't find too many doctors even at Stanford doing, I think. And this is a uh, classic case of smallpox and I don't put it up here to make you feel bad or turn away. I put it here because it's actually a very mild case of smallpox. Just to give you an idea of how horrible the disease was, um, in, in a bad case of smallpox, which we call confluent smallpox, there will not be a single point on this child's skin where you could your finger. The fact that there's some isolated areas means this child will live and not die. Whereas a third of all kids who got smallpox did die. And this is really an important graph because it's a histogram and it shows you that in 1974 we reached the peak of the most number of cases of smallpox recorded in human history. We had to do that because if we didn't find every case of smallpox at the same time, every virus in the world, on the planet at the same time, we couldn't put a circle of immunity around it and stop that virus from going on to the next susceptible patient. And, and I put this here just to remind me the number of people who worked from 50 different countries and put down the things that divided them so they could work together on a common cause. And that's what we're trying to do right now in fighting against climate change. That's what we're trying to do right now in fighting against new diseases. We don't have that level of effort yet in trying to bridge the gap between the rich and the poor. We don't have that level of agreement yet on education and how to make new jobs in Africa. But we're just getting started. So at Google, um, there's philanthropy in every department. We have a number of Googlers here today, raise your hand. Google, And uh, within Google, every department has its own uh, bit of philanthropy, which is quite wonderful. Uh, We give Google grants. Uh, Last year, I think we reached a total of $250 million in free advertising. We support 7,000 501c3s, and we think that they've been able to raise pretty close to a quarter of a billion dollars from these grants that we give. That's not our major activity, but that's a pretty good one for uh, a lot of different NGOs. Um, Google Earth is very popular when people call me up and they ask for something it 's almost inevitably for Google Earth way before about money so they can show what disease or what issue they're working on and how it how it 's shown all over the world and um, uh, because Google is a hybrid philanthropy because we 're not using tax advantage money, we can do things that other foundations would have difficulty doing mostly they could do anything we do but Uh, We can buy companies, we can start industries, we can invest in companies, we can give individual fellowships or we can um, lobby for systematic changes in policy. We couldn't do that if we were using after-tax money. So that's a good structure for us. It has all sorts of problems by the way. If you're a for-profit company and you're a Sarbanes-Oxley mediated uh, publicly traded company and you're working for profit in Kenya, and you're also giving money away in Kenya. You can just imagine some of the complexities. But it's worth the complexities because of the, the freedoms to innovate that it gives you. Um, I'll tell you a little bit now about uh, our five core initiatives. We started off with those 10,000 ideas. We uh, boiled them down to 900 concrete initiatives, and then we held the equivalent of a mock court, which went on for about six months or anyone who wanted to bring forth an initiative that we should do had to bring it to trial. And the other people who thought they had a better idea were the judges, and we fought pretty hard about them. And we've come up with five. One of them is to develop renewable energy um, at a price cheaper than coal. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. And Accelerate the commercialization of plug-in vehicles to try to create systems which predict and prevent novel communicable diseases that could become pandemic, to find them early and to stop them. And then hopefully to develop some techniques that could be used to do the same thing for famines and for floods and for droughts, early warning systems. And to inform and empower in a way to improve public services for the poor. I'll tell you a little bit more about that. And to try to create jobs, mostly in Africa and South Asia, for people living in the poorest countries. So first of all, in the last three decades, there have been 30 novel, emerging communicable diseases that had not existed in the form we see them now before. And 75% of them were zoonotic diseases that jumped species because of this population and animal pressure. It has uh, led to a whole new concept called One Health. One World, One Health where the health of the environment, the health of the animals, and the health of the insects, and the health of humans are all looked at the same way, bringing veterinarian epidemiology and human epidemiology together. Um, The the goal is to try to take, do you know what an epidemic curve is? How many of you know what an epidemic curve is? Well, okay, it's pretty easy to figure out what it is by its name, but if you were looking at the number of cases of uh, diarrhea disease following a picnic, you would see that over time the number of cases would go up and then everybody who could get the disease would have it and become immune and the number of cases would go down. So an epidemic curve looks a little bit like that in most instances. The, the actual the curve for HIV-AIDS looks a little bit like that because it's still going up. It's a huge pandemic and it hasn't come down and won't for some time. But right here is where we are This is when we first find a few cases of a disease. The goal of this initiative is to move the epidemic curve two steps to the left, so that we can find the cases earlier, and then even go even earlier than that and identify the hotspots where they might occur. And I'll give you a couple of quick examples about that. Uh, We are funding a group uh, that's in Palo Alto here, a group called Instead, which is trying to take the tools of Silicon Valley and the technology community and give it to the early responders. So right now they're working in Burma, for example, trying to give people the tools to share information, share news reports, have shared databases, use uh, satellite data to identify um, islands right now that are inundated with water where people are are searching and and can't be found after the the cyclone. But even better than that would be if we could find the first cases of SARS before they became pandemic. Now, SARS is a disease of bats. Bats bit civet cats. Civet cats are a delicacy in in Southeast Asia, and in the live markets where these animals are traded, the virus got loose and infected people. That's what started the almost pandemic of SARS. Bird flu is a disease mostly of ducks chickens and all flu is bird flu. If you could find SARS or you could find bird flu while it was still in animals and know that that was the virus that would jump to humans, that would be one form of early detection. If you could take it a step further, you could do a complete inventory of all the viruses and all the animals in the world and apply a great search engine so you could find any similarities and learn which of them were most probable of becoming a pandemic, that would even be another step to the left. So this is one of our initiatives, and for those of you who are in public health, I think you understand, this changes the game. If we can solve this problem, we have a different way of approaching public health problems. Um, In Africa and in Asia, there's very little money that goes into the kinds of startup companies that produce jobs. There's lots of money now for um, microcredit, for small loans that are used by individuals to smooth over the ups and downs of daily life in poor countries. There's lots of money for banks to fund extraction industries and to give large debt financing to oil or gas or diamonds. In between, there's a missing middle. The butcher, the baker, they're not able to get financing. If you think of Cisco, the one that's S-Y-S-C-O, not C-I-S-C-O, which is a food services company, how is Africa ever going to have a food services company as large as Cisco? Where will it get the financing? Right now, today, there's a butcher in Ghana named Joseph Takshi, and he wants to buy a second refrigeration system so he can keep good, clean meat and begin to deliver it to restaurants and deliver it to food storage. That may become... Africa's next Cisco, if he can get financing. And there's lots of money that wants to go into these small companies, but there's terrible obstacles preventing the money from going in. So one of the biggest problems is, you know sovereign wealth funds, crown funds, these are the funds like Singapore started, Kuwait started, where the money from commerce goes into one fund owned as part of uh, the public service, the government. There are more than $10 trillion today in sovereign wealth funds. But it doesn't go into these small companies because there's no exit vehicles, there's no IPOs, there's no mergers and acquisitions. There's no rules governing the value. There's no generally accepted accounting principles. And there's no way even to deal with the high transaction costs that it takes to make a $50,000 investment. We're gonna spend $100 million trying to solve that problem. If we can find a way that makes it possible for you and I and our pension funds and our mutual funds and our private equity funds to invest in these small companies, we can solve a huge problem and unleash this huge torrent of capital. Same thing is true in a little different way in public services. Um, There's a big fight right now in the developing world. I went to Africa last year to TED and, and Brooke was there with me. We watched a uh, hundred African entrepreneurs who were uh, fellows, and uh, Bono was there. And these hundred African entrepreneurs, when Bono got on the stage, they booed him. They booed him, and they said, "We don't want foreign aid. If you want to make Africa get out of poverty, make me rich. Fund my company, don't fund my government." And that meeting was divided between. Debt, financing, foreign aid, and trade. It was almost like a mantra, trade, aid, trade, aid, like a Michigan-Ohio State game fighting. I won't talk about the big game here. (laughs) I might be on the wrong side of it. I don't know. I'm just guessing. (laughs) Aid, trade, aid, trade. But that's not the right thing. You talk to poor people in poor countries, they only want two things. They want a job. They want the dignity of labor. They want to be able to send their kids to school so they can have a better life than they did. Same thing our parents wanted. And they want the services that the government promised them to be delivered. They want the water, they want the health care, and they want education. And so what we're trying to do in this initiative is take a look at the $700 billion that are spent by governments and public sector on basic services and take account of the leaky pipe that takes money out of it through corruption, through low or poor effort, absenteeism. These wasted resources, so at the end of that pipe, governments allocate $700 billion. What comes out of it is $70 billion. That's the total amount of foreign aid in the world, by the way, every year, too. So if you could improve public services by 10% globally, you would be providing services greater than all of foreign aid. And let's talk now about the biggest problem that we face, I think, as a civilization, which is global warming. And we've spent a lot of time trying to think about whether we should work on policy, whether we should work on conservation. But in the end, we decided that Google is an engineering company. And we should look for an engineering solution. Until and unless you can get electricity from renewables at a price cheaper than coal, no one is going to buy them. China's not going to buy your renewable energy if it costs three times what coal costs. India's going to burn every lump of coal until we find an alternative way of getting energy to the homes at a price cheaper than coal. Today, coal costs about four cents per kilowatt hour. And if you look here, right now, photovoltaics, four or five times as high as coal. As much as we want to put photovoltaics on our roof until we can get the price of solar down below the price of coal we will not succeed. Now this is an unbalanced equation so you can solve it two ways. You can get the electricity from renewables down or you can get the price of coal up. This is what cap and trade does or a tax on coal or internalizing the negative externalities of the health consequences of burning coal. One way or another Society's gonna to have to solve that problem in order for us to solve climate change. And right now, although I'm a big fan of plug-ins and electric cars, if you're plugging into a grid where 50% of your electricity comes from coal, you are marginally improving what you're doing, but the real win will be when we can plug in our electric cars into a green grid. And so that's our other initiative, is trying to accelerate the adaptation of plug-in hybrids, electric cars, and do that at the same time as we green the grid. So, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about what our initiatives are. Um, We've already announced that we'll be spending hundreds of millions of dollars on RE less than C. We have a five year time horizon to try to solve some of these huge problems. Um, We will fail at almost every one of them in some way or form, but we're extraordinarily committed to trying to use the resources and the good luck and the good fortune that Google's public presence and its great success has brought us to try to solve these problems. This is not a PR campaign for us. This is the heart and soul of Google. And for many people in Google, it's the single most important thing that we do. So I'm real pleased to be able to talk to you about that. And i um, pleased, Tom, you invited me, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you very much for having me. How do you want to do this?
1: Repeat the question. Just uh, speak up and he'll repeat the question for online.
0: How big is your staff and how do they all report into you and how do you manage all of these different projects from an infrastructure
2: perspective? Um, We have about 60 people that don't pay any attention to me at all. It's Google. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> um, we're divided up among initiatives. Uh, we focus at least 90% of our effort on those five initiatives. Um, every once in a while you have something like the Myanmar Cyclone come up and we, we do a little bit more than we uh, started to do. The question was, how do we focus our efforts and how big is the team at Google? Um, we have a whole variety of different people. I mean, we've got a lot of MBAs, we've got a lot of public health people, uh, we have a lot of uh, engineers and graphing and uh, geocoding people, so we have quite a wonderful team. Yes, sir?
1: Does nuclear figure at all into your long-term vision for RUS and
2: C? Um, well, you know, it's a very controversial issue, not so much because of emotions. Um, I think if you just look at it from an engineering point of view, uh, there will never be um, enough uranium to, to make a measurable difference in the total aggregate needs of power compared to solar and uh, compared to wind and enhanced geothermal. So, so it is a rounding error. E- even if we roll out as fast as we possibly can practically, it's still a rounding error in our needs. Um, I personally uh, look at it and I say, uh, show me the uh, nuclear power plant that has worked without any government funding or subsidy and that competes in the free market against that equation of electricity from renewable energy, because it is a renewable energy, electricity from renewable at a price cheaper than coal. If we can't develop it in a way that it's cheaper than coal, it doesn't help me solve my core problem. I don't have any religious objection to it. I'm just looking practically at at the situation. Yes, sir? Repeat the question. Repeat the question. That was a question about uh, nuclear energy, (laughs) if you couldn't tell.
0: (laughs) Uh, If any of these uh, companies that you're investing in um, make money, um, what happens to that money? Does that just get back
2: reinvested as though it's uh, Google.org money? When I started, uh, Larry uh, Page said to me, the only thing we couldn't do was make money for our shareholders.
0: Now that's really a strange thing
2: for someone to say. But um, we expect to make money, we hope to make money. Um, and, And the reason that we hope to make money isn't so much that we really care about the money that we make, although profits are gonna indeed be recycled into good things. It is because I've spent 30 years on the other side of it, either giving grants, running a traditional foundation, or trying to get grants. And the problem is that if you are basing an initiative on money that comes either through Congress or through a foundation, it is not reliable. It's not sustainable. We call Congress the disease of the month Congress because they change their mind every day. The cause of the month Congress, if you're look at it more wider, you just think we're going to be having a whole seismic shift in our political structure and the next incoming administration wants to do exactly the opposite of the other one. If you're caught between two administrations, you don't have a sustainable project and the same thing is true in foundations. In, we live in a capitalist world. We owe a great deal of uh, gratitude to the venture capitalists, to the entrepreneurial activities that create the jobs in this country and every other place. And we will not be able to be successful in doing great and ambitious tasks unless we fit into that world. Yes, sir?
0: You know, what is the best idea, to, or best way to get ideas to you? Um, you know,
2: I mean, you're generating a lot in-house, but let's say I have some um, well, it's, it's easier and harder now that we have our initiatives, because we're only gonna do those five initiatives. So if you have an idea that fits in those initiatives, we want to hear from you. Uh, Whereas a year and a half ago, we didn't know what to do with everything that was coming in. Uh, So get on the website, the google.org website. Take a look and see if you have an idea which fits that initiative. And then each one of those initiatives on our website has an individual who's responsible for looking at those new ideas. And the difference is we crave those ideas now. Whereas a year and a half, we didn't know if we were going to do water or we were going to do solar. Yes, ma'am.
0: Um, I was wondering if you could speak to some of the key um, drivers that you think will make RLSC successful um, from cultural, government, um, lifestyle, you know? What, are, what will have to change to make it successful?
2: Well, actually, from none of those are important. And I used to think those were all important. Um, if, if you have a way to deliver electricity, from solar or enhanced geothermal or wind at a price less than coal, every utility is gonna buy your energy. They're gonna buy your electricity. So, it, yes, it's really important that we increase government money for R&D. Last year it was $900 million, total, all country, for all research and development and renewables. That's a, that's a moral crime, I think. Um, but the reality is that it's not gonna be the government that solves that problem. It be somebody in this room. It be some engineer here or another college that's gonna solve some of those problems. We have to figure out transmission, one of the biggest issues, or storage. We have to figure out ways to scale and get declining unit costs as we move forward and scale. But it's still an engineerable solution. And if you think about a world in which the grid is green and we drive cars that plug into that grid, you've solved half the problem or more. There's some parts of the problem we're just not gonna solve. Cows will continue to burp and do the other thing that they do. And that's 14 to 15% of climate change until we've all become vegetarians, we're gonna deal with that issue. But this is a huge chunk of the problem and it's something that we can solve. Yes? Do you have a portfolio of patents in the works or anticipate that the question is, do we have a portfolio of patents in the works? We actually do have some things that might be patentable, we hope, um, and we're going to be starting to publish a lot in the scientific literature. Uh, that's not our goal. That's a, an outcome of the creative process. Yes. yes. So you do
0: have a lot coming to this, you know, uh, corporate social responsibility type area now, right, in the last few years. So, can you
2: tell me that for your 5 initiatives there are people who have been in um, small and medium business enterprises who have been there for a long time. Are you, are you going to partner with people in your five initiatives who, who have a wealth of experience? And, you know, sure. Are the question is, are we going to partner with people in these initiatives? We're partnering with over 100 organizations right now. Um, uh, we've given grants um, just under $100 million so far, uh, almost all beginning in uh, November of last year. Uh, We've given grants to about uh, 300 different organizations. We're partnering with 10 times that many organizations. um, And we do almost nothing ourselves. Uh, We work through other people and with other people. Um, And I don't think there's any way to do it. If you come into the scene and you're the kindergarten student, as we are, and you tell the postgraduate uh, uh, seminar how they should do the work they've been doing for 20 years, it's, it's probably not the smartest thing to do. And it doesn't work. CETA, right, you Into what? You CETA, you know, yeah. yeah. So then, when you with like that, are you Because Google has Mike, right? Uh, so the, the question is CETA is the Canadian development organization, like we have AID, and there's another CETA with an S, which is Swedish and Donada, and these are the big government sponsored uh, economic development organizations. And we partner with all of them. Uh, especially right now in, uh, in disaster relief. Over there.
1: Um, what do you see as the most exciting storage technology either out there or that you guys are already investing in? <laughs>
2: um, that's a long story, and probably all, maybe a little, we can talk about that afterwards. But uh, where did I see, uh, I think Forbes just had an article which was said, go long on lithium. And it happened right after uh, the the cyclone in Berman. I didn't know if they were talking about an antidepressant or if they were talking about the battery. So uh, I think probably the world's going to use lithium in several different ways. But um, it's a great question, and storage is a a factor. It may not be as big a factor if we can solve transmission. If you can't solve transmission, storage is a bigger problem. Because most, you, you guys all know this, but most renewable energy sources, except for enhanced geothermal deep geothermal um, are so inconsistent uh, periodical that you have to find ways to either, sol- either store it or get it into the grid right away so it c- can be used in a large, a large area. I think we have time for maybe one or two more or more yeah, than no, that? No, more? more uh, so Brooke is going to sing um, <laughs> and I think he was going to sing Ripple.
1: Well, maybe later. <laughs> How do you analyze the link between climate
2: change and global infectious diseases? Analyze it or attribute Characterize it? Characterize it. it. Characterize it.
1: Evolving.
2: Um, I can't, I mean, there are a few cases where emerging communicable diseases or transforming communicable diseases, which is equally important. Let's take tuberculosis, which is an old disease and it's transforming you now have multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis. And the reason you have multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis is because the bacterium which causes tuberculosis has now gone through a number of reservoirs. These are human beings as reservoirs who are immunocompromised. They're either immunocompromised because they have HIV AIDS or because they are on on, um, chemotherapy. Um, So there are a few that are a little far away from global warming. I'd say 90% of the zoonotic, emerging communicable diseases are directly related to climate change. Um, Let's take an example. Every uh, mosquito-borne disease is going to be affected by climate change. Uh, The Anopheles mosquito uh, will, five years from now, um, come in contact with one billion more people than it does today. Let's just take one example. Um, When uh, the British colonialists were working in Africa or India, they created things called hill stations, and these were towns at 6,000 feet or above uh, in order to get away from the summer heat and in order to get away from mosquitoes because mosquitoes can't survive at the temperatures of these hill stations. Well, today they can survive at these temperatures. Um, So mosquitoes used to die off every winter because you'd have a diurnal die-off of of insects when temperatures would go down, insects die. You may have noticed the uh, flies coming back to your own houses in the last couple of days. It's the end of that diurnal die-off. Well, we're not gonna have that in five years. Temperatures will never go down low enough to freeze out the insects. So the velocity of insect-human interactions will increase. The latitude and longitude and altitude that mosquitoes will be able to go and carry their diseases, whether it's Uh, Japanese encephalitis or dengue or or malaria. So that is a completely climate-related disease. We don't have enough food. So Africans are consuming wild animals at a rate never seen before. Last year, Africans consumed 700 million animals, 2 billion kilograms of bush meat. So we're funding organizations that go out into the bush and take a drop of blood from an animal that's killed and a drop of blood from the hunter, and we look at the viral chatter that goes back and forth between hunters and humans to see what viruses are there that are likely to jump species, have jumped species, and what do we see in the human genetic trace that shows that that virus has been there before or not? But the reason that these animals and humans are coming closer together is because of food scarcity, which is climate-related, and because we've cut down the trees that the animals used to live in, and humans and animals now live in each other's terrain. So I think this is a huge question going forward. And, and by the way, it's a huge question going backwards. HIV-AIDS absolutely was a monkey disease. Monkeys were eaten by chimpanzees, and humans and, monkey, humans and chimpanzees did naughty things together. And if it hadn't been for those monkeys coming in contact with a third party, these chimpanzees, we would not have HIV-AIDS today. And can you imagine, had we been there the first time that virus jumped species with an early warning system and found it, this horrific epidemic of HIV-AIDS, one of the worst pandemics in history, could have been averted. Yes? You mentioned that
0: you to flip people's thinking from pouring all their efforts into um, just for-profit companies to more socially responsible, does Google.org do anything to train um, other companies that do want to shift their thinking into this Google.org
2: method? So the question is, does Google.org train other companies? Uh, First of all, uh, I want to say that we stole the idea of Google.org from another company, um, from uh, salesforce.com and Mark Benioff. So Mark, if you're listening, uh, thank you. Um, it was his idea to have the one percent equity and the one percent profits and the, the staff time, and uh, yeah, we're looking very, um, with a great deal of interest, to see what other companies will be able to do a .org. Now, in fairness, you can't quite do it once you're public. Uh, you, you now are the custodian of other people's money. Your shareholders own the company; it's their money. You can't give away their. You can't give away their money. Benjamin Franklin wrote a long essay about the fiduciary duty of a the owner of a chartered company, and one of those duties that he's not allowed to do is to give money to charity. Um, so it's much easier if you do it before you go public, but once companies are public, they can do things with the concurrence of their shareholders. It's a lot harder. But I think I'm seeing a change uh, in the PG&Es, and the Walmarts, and the Duke Energies, uh, companies that I wouldn't have uh, 20 years ago been talking about in, in a way that these are companies that are trying increasingly, in different areas, to do things that um, make me proud. Yes? You uh, showed
1: that a photovoltaic solar is maybe five times more expensive than coal. Are there any prospects for other forms of solar? Sure, sure.
2: I mean, we're very interested in, in, in solar thermal, and we've announced a couple of investments in solar thermal companies. And um, You know, it, it does seem like, of all the things that you look at, if you could get the mirrors cheaper and— and replace the expense of the mirrors with uh, IT technology so you could scale it faster, we should be able to solve that problem. I mean, it's, um, it's logical to think that today's round of, uh, of solar thermal companies can produce electricity in the 8 to 12 cents per kilowatt hour. Coal is 4. Um, we should be able to drive down one or up the other. I'm very optimistic about that enhanced geothermal even more so, I think. Yes?
0: Has Google found a way to harness the talent of Google employees around the world to engage on these initiatives?
2: I'd say it's my biggest failure. Um, I, I was just talking to someone today. Uh, we're trying to, uh, uh, we're actually testing out an engineering system to early warning. And one of the engineers working with us just sent out an email to all the engineers at Google and asked for volunteers to help build this system. And in 36 hours, let me see if I have the numbers right in, 36 hours, he got uh, 500 engineers to volunteer time. And in the aggregate, um, it, what he was able to do was amazing. I've not been able to do that for other things, and I try. Uh, there are some things which lend themselves more to, to that than others, but uh, it will be, we will not succeed unless we figure out how to do it. We haven't done it very well. I wish we had done it better. Yes.
0: In, in radicating smallpox, a lot of that's sort low tech and door to door and pretty basic technology. Are there new unmet needs in biotechnology that will help that early detection uh, for new pandemics that don't exist yet that need to be invented
2: or created easier? Brooke. He's asking if there are, are new techniques in, in biotech that haven't been invented yet that would help solve early warning.
1: New rapid point care diagnostics, very inexpensive, used by non.
2: We, we have a number of people that we work with who, who uh, feel that it's not the $1,000 genome that the target is, but the million-dollar sequencer that could be a small sequencer put into, uh, into developing countries. Scale is one of the big issues. It, 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 so many of these questions get answered when you can take current technologies and scale them or new technologies. Yes, hi. Hi.
0: Uh, in your five areas, I
2: didn't see anything about war, violence, uh, conflict resolution, nonviolence.
1: Did you think a lot about that yep. in your process? The yep. <laughs> question is, do we think a lot about
2: war, conflict, and conflict resolution? I mean, certainly, we, there's, 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 it's a growth industry. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we, th- we think a lot about it, and we do do quite a bit with it, but we Can do I it, it, fit we it in a different way. It doesn't fall into our five initiatives. But of the seven thousand nonprofits that we support uh, through Google grants and especially with Google Earth, I would say a very high proportion of them are dealing with conflict resolution. Uh, it's a huge problem. Um, w- w- it made our our shortlist. Um, it was hard to see what we had uniquely to offer. Um, it it is not a problem that is easily susceptible to an engineering solution. It isn't really a problem that scale solves, in a way, I mean, it, you really have to change the hearts of people. And we didn't know that we had expertise in that area. It's a very hard issue. It's, you know, clearly one of the most important things in the world. Yes, sir?
0: Uh, speaking from an African standpoint, although those initiatives all are pretty um, useful in that region. They're not mutually exclusive. And if the solutions are developed, say in uh, Mountain View or in San Francisco, they have a certain perspective. How are you able to get those into the field? For example, when you talk about solar thermal being 8 to 15 cents per kilowatt, which sounds unprofitable or not viable in the US or less competitive. In some countries in Africa, it is quite competitive. Do you have a mechanism for getting those initiatives first to overlap so that everybody working in engineering, small business, enterprise growth, and so on can share ideas, but also a way of getting that information seeping into where it's needed most, right immediately, not waiting until you have a perfect solution?
2: So his question is excellent. two questions, and they're both excellent. One is, how do you get rid of the Mountain View-centric way of building things that won't then work in Africa or in other parts of the world. And then when you look at prices, uh, some of the prices that I quoted for photovoltaics, where they are high compared to coal here, they're low compared to any kind of electricity in Africa, and you don't have very much electricity, which is absolutely true. Um, Let's take that first one. Uh, Almost everything that we're doing in um, our SME initiative, this Missing Middle initiative, and in the inform and empower, which is improving government services, is being done in Africa, primarily in Tanzania and East Africa. We're also funding in Ghana, the uh, Carter Center's work on on Guinea worm eradication. We're funding uh, disease, um, early warning systems in South Africa as well as working in Ethiopia. Um, So we're doing a lot in Africa and we feel really comfortable with that. We, We love working in Africa and I'm very optimistic about Africa. I bet people don't know that the top two performing stock markets in the world last year were both in Africa, for example. The other question about um, the appropriateness of different technology in different countries is a really good one. Uh, Africa may find a lot of its electricity being off-grid because transmission is such a high component of cost. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much.